Why did he do it? That's the question on everyone's mind after a mass shooting or stabbing. You know, authorities search through social media posts and personal possessions, talk to everyone they can find who has ever known the killer, and consult with professionals who think they may have found the connection between his beliefs and his behavior. And most do acknowledge there is a connection between beliefs and behavior. So did the Apostle Paul. That's why he spent the first 11 chapters of Romans making sure we understand what we believe before addressing the behavior that is to characterize a believer. And as we noted last week, he moved from the believing side of the gospel to the behaving side when he wrote these words, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now that we understand the mercies of God, understand all that he's done for us, we are expected to live holy lives that reflect that understanding, lives that are not formed by the thinking of this world, but lives that are transformed by the renewing of our mind. And to keep the world from squeezing us into its mold, we've got to allow God to mold us into the image of his son. And he does this by renewing our mind, by giving us a new way to look at things. And the first thing we've got to look at differently is our self. Obviously, the way we view ourself has a direct bearing on the way we act. So Paul wants us to reconsider the way we think of ourselves. And in effect, he's going to say, I want you to think of yourself soberly, collectively, and graciously. If we'll do that. We will become acceptable to God as living and holy sacrifices. We will be well-pleasing to him. An unbelieving world doesn't care about that, but we do. And while the way we think of ourselves won't solve all of our problems, it will certainly solve most of the conflicts that can be found even in a body of believers. So how should we think of ourselves? We think soberly. Verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. 
Now, the world says our problem is that we don't think highly enough of ourselves, that we're all suffering from low self-esteem. Even those who appear to be self-assured, we're told, are just covering up. So a top psychological priority today is to raise our self-esteem, and that's not a bad thing. It's vital that we do have a healthy self-image. And kids who don't have supportive, encouraging parents need to know they have worth and can accomplish something in life. But the way to get that healthy self-image is not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. You know, getting someone to shout, I am somebody, like Jesse Jackson used to do, may not be the best approach. It's definitely not Paul's approach. And he's speaking through the grace given to him. He is speaking as an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we need to hear what he has to say to us. And what he says is, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. An inflated self-image isn't the answer to our image problem. In fact, low self-esteem may not actually be the problem. The problem may be pride. The problem may be that we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Failure and antisocial behavior may not come so much from low self-esteem as it does from a sense that I'm smarter or stronger or more important than anyone else, that I don't have to play by your rules because they don't apply to me. You know, maybe psychologists have misinterpreted the problem, but be that as it may, Paul tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. The word actually means think soberly. We can build on that idea and say, don't be intoxicated by exaggerated notions of your own importance. Look at yourself through God's eyes. Measure yourself by the standard of faith, by understanding who you are in relation to the God who made you and in relation to the rest of God's people. In other words, think collectively, verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, And all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. You know, our identity doesn't come from our individuality nearly as much as it comes from our relationships with others. We view ourselves by the role we play in society or our standing in some pecking order. We determine our wealth by the way others look at us even more than by the way we look at ourselves. 
If others see us as important or talented or fun, we tend to see ourselves that way. If they see us a loser, worthless, or boring, we tend to see ourselves that way. Now, we may try to change the way others look at us. We may attempt to exert our individuality by working harder, playing harder, or dropping out further. We may even call attention to ourselves by striking out against those who have failed to notice us or who have bullied us. But that simply proves that our identity isn't based on the way we see ourselves. It's based on the way others see us. And that really is the way God intends it to be. He designed us for fellowship. He designed us to interact with others. And, of course, with him. The problem comes when we feel we must compete, that we must prove ourselves to be better than someone else or our role more important than someone else's. The answer to an inferiority complex isn't superiority because there's always going to be someone smarter or faster or better looking than we are. Even if we win the gold, Chances are that someone else will win it next year. We don't get a healthy self-image by being better than someone else. We get it by understanding that everyone is important and that we are individually members one of another. Even the world recognizes this to be true, and the world tries at times to make us feel as if we're all one. You know, we hear calls for unity when it's obvious we're divided. And we're all encouraged to light a candle or hold hands when tragedy strikes. But the feeling of unity quickly fades because we're estranged from our Creator and we are estranged from one another. The good news, however, is that we don't have to be. Through Christ, we can truly become one. In fact, through him, we actually become one body, the body of Christ on earth. And if we see ourselves as the body of Christ, we realize our importance doesn't come from what we do individually, but what we do collectively. And it doesn't matter what our function is in the body. What matters is that we are a functioning part of the body. We can be an eye, a foot, or an appendix. It doesn't matter. And if you don't think an appendix is important, just see what happens to the body when it blows. Even if we don't think of ourselves as terribly important and don't fully understand all that we are supposed to be doing, just knowing that we are indeed a part of the body of Christ is enough to give us a tremendous sense of worth. I really am somebody because I am a part of the body of Christ. And as a part of the body of Christ, whatever I do is important. Not only because I'm part of a functioning whole, 
but because he has graciously given to every part of his body gifts that enable them to function effectively. So Paul says, when thinking of yourself, think soberly, think collectively, and think graciously. Verses 6 through 8. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. We do what we do in the body of Christ because we've been given gifts that enable us to do what we do. And obviously we don't all do the same thing. If we did, we wouldn't be a body. We'd just be one big tongue or a foot or an eyeball. I'll never, never forget how a youth minister from California told us he made that point to a bunch of teens. He, he painted a football to look like an eyeball. He wrapped it in a blanket and then told the kids to take a look at his baby. <laughs> As you can imagine, they were grossed out. It takes more than one part to make a complete body of Christ. There will be eyes and ears and hands and feet and even toenails. And toenails are important. My buddy Alan found that out. He got an ingrown toenail and couldn't come work out with me for over a week. They all matter. It doesn't matter which part we are. It doesn't really even matter what we do. All that matters is that we do what we've been designed to do. What we've been gifted to do. And as Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 12, God has placed the members, the individual parts of the body, where he wants them. That means what we are is not up to us. It's up to the one who designed us and who put us all together. So our sense of self-worth doesn't come from the particular gift we've been given. It simply comes from the fact that we have been given a gift. We all have. And one gift is not more important than the other. They are all gifts given by the grace of God and distributed in the body as he sees fit. That means we are all equally important in God's eyes, in our eyes, and in the eyes of our brothers and sisters. At least that is true if we all understand the nature of the body of Christ and we therefore view ourselves and each other as recipients of grace. Nothing more and nothing less. That enables us to be gracious in the exercise of our gift and in dealing with each other. Our only concern, then, is doing what we've been gifted to do. And Paul mentions seven gifts 
here in Romans 12. Now, he mentions 11 gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 4 in Ephesians 4. So no list of gifts is exhaustive. They're merely examples of the kinds of gifts God has given to individual members of the body of Christ. The point is, whatever gift you've been given, use it. Use it for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. If you've been given the gift of prophecy, if you've been given the ability to effectively declare the truths revealed in God's word, then preach it. Now, the phrase, according to the proportion of his faith, has been interpreted several ways. Some have interpreted it to mean the preacher should only preach what he believes. And that should certainly be true. Others suggest it means a preacher should only preach what his hearers are ready to believe. And there's some wisdom in that as well. But the Greek actually says the faith, not his faith. I think the point Paul is making is that a preacher should only preach that which is consistent with the body of faith as revealed in Scripture. He's not free to say whatever he wants to say. He's only to preach what he's been given to preach. So if you've been given the gift of preaching, then preach what you've been given to preach. Likewise, if you have the gift of serving, then serve wherever there is a need for service in the body. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach. If you have the gift of exhortation, then exhort, encourage the saints, and stir them to action. If you have a gift for finance, Use it in ways that advance the kingdom and glorify Christ. If people will follow you, then be diligent to lead them in the path of righteousness. If you've been given a tender, compassionate heart, bring joy into the lives of those who need it. Just use the gift God has given you. And in doing so, you will know that you're a vital important part of the body of Christ. If you want to have a healthy self-image, if you want to be to, to feel good about who you are and why you're here, then let God renew your mind. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't listen to all the voices out there telling you, what you should be or shouldn't be or do or not do. Let God renew your mind. Get in sync with his mind. Think soberly. Think collectively. Think graciously. Realize that you don't have to convince yourself or anyone else that you're something you're not in order to be happy. All you have to do is realize that you are a child of God who has been made a part of the body of Christ. And you are someone who has been graciously equipped for a job that has eternal significance. That's how you're to think of yourself. Now, obviously, you can't do that apart from a relationship with Christ. So that's the place to start. 
If you've not done so, acknowledge the fact that without him, you are nothing. And without him, you can do nothing that really matters. But with Jesus, thank God, you're saved and you really are somebody. If you want to be somebody in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the body of Christ, let him forgive you, empower you, and gift you. And then let him use you as a living sacrifice. Live a life that is holy and acceptable to God. A life that will make an eternal difference for you and for others. Again, it can't be done without Christ in your life. So if you haven't done so, acknowledge your need for him. And I would invite you to do that today.